Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. And in, well, in the intro, um, you mentioned that uh, that you were uh, that you basically took on the job from Ian McDonald. I mean, Ian McDonald did Revolution in the Head, which you, you've, you've made quite clear is that it's the template for your book. But right. actually, he was down to originally um, write that book, wasn't he? He was. And Before he, he died. And, and he wrote some amazing pieces along the way that you could tell were going to be part of the book. I remember one about Station to Station. I can't remember what magazine it was in. It was brilliant. Um, I'm sure Ian will be turning in his grave at the idea that I've, t- <laughs> I've taken over his project. Um, what happened was that he and I have the same editor. And it just came up in conversation one day. And the editor said, you know, we never found out when Ian died whether there was a manuscript. And he said to me, if you... Would you be interested if there was a, a, a manuscript that was 95% done and having a look at it and seeing whether we could do anything with it? And I said, sure. Went away and thought about it and started to get excited. And then he came back and said, no, absolutely no manuscript. And I said, but me, it's mine. It's my project. I want to do it now. <laughs> and, that's, and, and that's what happened. So but there was, no, there was no actual start on the book. There was no kind of entry for Space Oddity or whatever. I mean, he just made some um, basic notes. As, as far as I know, they couldn't find anything at all, no, so... This is, I should say, actually, is the word podcast, isn't it? And on my left, the mighty Peter Doggett, who was in uh, not long ago talking about his tremendous uh, Beatles book. Uh, welcome, Peter. Thank you. And Fraser Lurie at the controls, and the equally tremendous Paul De Neuer, uh, a Bowie, Bowie enthusiast and uh, specialist. And uh, Peter's written uh, a book called The Man Who Sold the World, uh, David Bowie and the 70s, which I'm glad we sorted this out, because I came into the office this morning <laughs> saying, I, I look at this, which is terrific. Well, I've read the whole thing. I said, but there's no mention of China Girl, one of my favourite songs. And Fraser said, uh, I, I refer you to the title of the book. Do not lead with your... To make sure your opening question is not, why isn't China Girl in this book? But anyway, it's out. And uh, the... The thing that struck me very early on in your terrific introduction is the complexity of, of uh, Bowie's family. I mean, in fact, there's an interview in the next edition of Word, Max Hastings, who says, no successful person ever comes from a happy childhood, mm. which is quite an interesting point. And if you think, uh, we talked about this a lot in your Beatles uh, podcast, the, the lives of Ringo Starr, um, of Paul McCartney to some extent, and to a great extent, uh, John Lennon, and how the extent to which they were driven to um, to go on and uh, and achieve things and settle schools. But in Bowie's case, explain 
if you can, the complexity of Peggy Burns and John Jones's parents and the and the children they'd, they'd already. Oh my had. goodness! It would, would be easier. It would be easier to be Rolf Harrison having <laughs> a flip chart and be writing family trees yeah. and stuff. Um, both Bowie's mother and father had had children elsewhere, illegitimately, as far as I can recall. Before they came together, um, the mother got pregnant before she and Bowie's father were married. Um, as a result of all this, there were two older half-sisters. I'm never sure what's, what's the difference between a half-sister and a step-sister. Anyway, two older sisters right. and an older brother. And the one of the sisters was just t- t- given away immediately. That's right. Abandoned. I don't think Bowie ever yep. saw her or heard no. about it. The elder one, I think, was in the family at some stage, and out of the family. Yep. Was occasionally in and and then there's Terry... Terry Burns, the, who was the famous, the famous older brother, who was I think nine, uh, no, eight, year, eight years older than David, and um, had an enormous influence on him on, at very impressionable times of his life. Um, in his mid-teens, he came back from the services and was available to rescue David from South London, this very tiny little house that. Um, Various friends of Bowie's from that period have, have described to me as being, you know, cramped and dark, and they have a television in the corner with a two-inch screen, you know, dusty, absolutely no sense of joy yes, there very, at very all. Kind of fetid and claustrophobic. Mm, yes. That's right. And his older brother Terry was able to take him out into Soho and say, "Well, look, this is, these are cafes. This is existentialism. This is beat literature. This is jazz." All of which, you know, at the age of fourteen and fifteen, he's bored at school. He's sort of compressed at home. No real ambitions, um, apart from maybe playing rock and roll. Uh, and suddenly he's got the world opened up to him. Um, and I think it's really important that he got that learning from a family member rather than from school, because the big thing out of, I think, Bowie's whole life is that he's self-taught. He's, he's an autodidact. Um, and he's picked up influences along the way. And he's, certainly in the period I was writing about, is absolutely desperate to accumulate new knowledge, new experiences, new people, new writers, new art, yeah. new music. And he's not satisfied until he's got everything. Well, we'll come on to the school, the school bit in a minute, because that's equally fascinating. Uh, Peter Frampton's father is mm-hmm. a lecturer. But, Paul, we were talking about this earlier. The te- Terry, um, Terry Burns, his, his half-brother, is an incredible influence, isn't he? He's the one who, I think, turns him on to Coltrane and, and Kerouac and takes him out to the... To, 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 as, as Peter was saying, to Soho. Yes, yeah, so, I, I, I wish we could know more about it. And Bowie is obviously not um, especially forthcoming. He will... He has occasionally talked about... Things, cultural things, which his brother introduced him to, as you were mentioning, particularly that, uh, that the life of Soho and jazz and so forth. Um, what we don't know so much about, and speculative biographies have been written about this, is the um, is the emotional influence on Bowie of um, his brother's um, mental decline. Mm. Uh, Terry, uh, you know, had in, you know, severe mental difficulties. Although apparently a very bright man and so forth, yeah. but he was very, you know, very troubled, and um, he was put away in a, a mental hospital in South London, somewhere around um, Croydon. Um, and I forget which year. But eventually, he 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 checked himself out and effectively uh, killed himself, didn't he, mm. on the on the railway line yeah. uh, near the, uh, the hosp- near the hospital. Right. <clears throat> in fact, if you look at the cover, maybe just the American cover of uh, the Man Who Sold the World, the um, there is a sort of um, eerie silhouette of a building uh, behind the um, the uh, the lone gunman, um, and this this cover is doubly creepy because the the image of the lone gunman put one in mind of all those stories of um, you know, assassins who would go turn up on American campus um, absolutely uh, premises, yeah. but also the building behind is actually the mental hospital that um, that Bowie's brother Terry uh, 
uh, was was incarcerated in. So, you know, we don't know for sure, really. I mean, perhaps Bowie will tell us if he, if he gets around to writing his book. But um, clearly, having idolised his, his older brother, the, um, the the effect of watching the, the state deterioration of Terry must have been something, you know, must have been something significant in Bowie's own mental landscape. Oh, you mentioned the intro again, quite rightly. I mean, it, 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 it's very easy to look at somebody's uh, kind of body of work and bring in all manner of analysis, but one of the points you make is that his confusion about this sense of kind of belonging and identity if you come from such a complicated family. Mm. And the other is this uh, sort of obsession and probably fear of inheriting, because the, the schizophrenia, I think there are other members of the family who had been schizophrenic. Mm. Aunts uh, and so on. And, yeah. And the, the, the family legend is that his mother told him at a young age, all my side of the family go mad, so basically you've got no escape. And then, right. and then he sees his much, much loved Probably a mistake, brother. I would have thought. <laughs> Tell a small child. Imprinting the child, this was their yes. destiny. Yeah. I know. No, it's, uh, uh, I didn't realise how much um, he was influenced by him. I mean, he, he really idolises him, doesn't he? He's mm. about, how old, six years older than Terry, was he? Um, I think I said, yeah, eight, I think. Eight, eight years. And uh, yeah. as a toddler, they're sharing a when Bowie's a toddler, they're sharing a room, so they've got that bond from when he's very young. And it sounds as if it was a very affectionate relationship. I mean, physically, you know, you give him a hug, whereas you don't get that impression about the parents at all. It's a very cold, distant, old-fashioned English upbringing. Um, well, you know, children in their place. Yeah. So the the real sense of belonging that he, I think that he gets from his brother is is very important. And then when he's when he's there's a sense in which that's the only sort of stable and interesting bit of his family life. And then when that starts to fall to pieces, I think he stepped back from it very very much. And I'm I'm, I'm guessing I'm not David Bowie, but my 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 feeling is that he tried very hard to forget how important Terry had been to him. Yeah. But that that influence was inescapable. It kept coming back to him the whole time. Yeah. Well, we can get on to the the t- t- sort of family substitutes. I mean, later on, he kind of moves in with, with to Ken Pitt's place. You know, mm. he's his early manager, possibly to escape the, the family home and all the complexities of things that were going on. But another point you made, which I thought was brilliant, uh, was about how in your Beatles book. Um, you talk about the Beatles perfectly defining an entire decade. Their story starts at the beginning of the 1960s and it ends, I think it was on the 4th of January 1970. Perfect. Mm, yeah. And you make the same point about this. Well, this is particularly why you've chosen to confine the book to the 70s music of, of Bowie, that Bowie sums up the 1970s. But you also make the point that he was very out of step with the 60s. So what, what, what did you mean by that? Because he was how old was he? He would have been 13 when the 60s um, In lots yeah. of ways. I, I say in the book he was, he was in the perfect position because in 1963 he leaves school. He's a pop star of sorts in, in, in the borough of Bromley or you know, in, in Bromley and Beckenham. He's playing in a band called The Comrades. Um, he gets girls after him, I'm sure. And he also gets a job in advertising in the West End in Bond Street. So, I mean, he's the king of London, he must feel like. And he keeps coming across um, managers and producers who say, I'm going to make you a star, son. And <laughs> each one... In that accident, in fact. Almost <laughs> yeah. certainly. And each one of them <laughs> fails to do that ignominiously. Um, Partly, I think, because he couldn't fix upon what he was supposed to be, and so he was always trying to be what he, what he thought other people wanted him to be. He would be changing himself to fit a format. And so by the end of the 60s, at the height of the sort of counterculture, when everybody else is waving flowers and, and Uzis or whatever they were, you know, whether they were into yeah. drugs, love or revolution, yeah. um, he has more or less... Flowers and Uzis. <laughs> Great album title, you never mind. He, he, he's more or less retired from the scene. He's more or less given up. Um, his first album comes out in 67, and he does nothing to promote it. I mean, there's nothing available. There are no gigs, no tours, no, no films, nothing. 
it, his career comes to a complete halt at the point when it should have been taking off. And so I think he went into... Um, I can't say he was depressed, but this, his career went into a depression from which he only emerged by accident, really, with Space Oddity. Well, he writes the most extraordinary thing. He wrote a rock opera in 1968 about, uh, about a, uh, with a theme of suicide. Yeah. I, think. I mean, uh, strangely, it was not taken up by anybody <laughs> and, and uh, actually produced. But uh, also, you forget how many groups there were. There was the uh, the King Bees, was it? The, the lower the lower third. Um, yeah, the Conrad. Yeah, Do you I mean, remember but, that? but we had a, but we had a crack at just about everything that was yeah. going, including hippie. He was a hippie for a fortnight, but <laughs> nothing with him ever seemed to go terribly deep. He was just sort of, you know, to use to use one of the many cliches about Bowie. He was sort of trying on costumes, was dressing up box. He was trying out identities to see what fitted, but. In a sense, he he never did belong to the 60s, as you say, but he really did belong to the 50s. I always think of Bowie as really a Tin Pan Alley uh, yeah. creature from mm. 1950s London. Uh, he really belongs to Denmark Street, which is where he first started scuffling around and finding these bands like the um, mm. the King Bees, uh, even the Small Faces. You know, he was hanging around with the early Small Faces. Uh, but that was a 50s kind of world, even into the 60s. And I think Bowie, for a long time, did see himself not as a... Not as a not as a singer songwriter of the Dylan generation, but as a kind of jobbing um, songwriter who would um, who would place his work with other people. If he couldn't be a star himself, he would write songs for other people. And this was his plan um, for for quite a few years until, uh, almost to his own surprise, he he actually began to take off with um, Hunky Dory and um, Ziggy Stardust. He did see himself as somebody who, who would write songs for proper stars like Peter Noon and Lulu. <laughs> Uh, because he'd pretty much given up all, um, having had a, having Respect. tried and having tried in the sixties and failed to become a sixties pop star. I think he thought, that's, well, right. that's it, that's it for me. And mm. then, but then things began to change in the seventies, as you say. That's when, yeah. that's but, where uh, Bowie suddenly locks in with the yeah. times. Mm. But I, I think he also had the, the theme in his head of being an entertainer throughout as well. That he he was very much in love in love with that tradition. And I, and I, I, I make quite a lot in the early stages of the book of the Anthony Newley influence. Now everybody always talks about Anthony Newley and says, "Oh yeah, laughing." No, Anthony Newley full stop fired it away. But nobody ever thinks about who Anthony Newley was. And he was the original polymath. He was um, writing films. He was doing TV comedy series. He was making. Records. He was a great songwriter, writing stage musicals, doing absolutely any, everything he could within the realms of entertainment. And I think he, he, he was very much the, the, the sort of artistic mentor for Bowie. You make a really 60s. good point about him. And uh, well, Paul's in fact interviewed Bowie, I think, three or four times. We should talk about that later. But uh, we see that Bowie has this way of putting on this Anthony Newley persona when he when he deals with with the media, which is that kind of cheeky, kind of cheeky London chappy. That mm. kind of, here we go. It's all getting a bit serious. It's just a bit of fun. It's just a <laughs> laugh. And uh, no, he obviously wasn't extremely influential. Mm. But another thing which has fascinated me in the book was about his job in advertising. Again, I've forgotten this completely. We all know that Andy Warhol was in advertising. We all know that. Andy Warhol, um, you know, began uh, manipulating other images and and uh, and using this whole idea of of, um, of kind of spin, I suppose, and uh, modification in, in his art, and had a very kind of academic uh, view of it. But 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 Bowie must have been obviously very attracted by and learnt a lot from the notion of, of that you could present something in six different ways or you could come mm. up with a load of different um, ways of persuading people into a, into a particular mood I mean it must have affected his work presumably. definitely because he was 16 a very impressionable yeah. age when he went and although he, um, some biographers and even Bowie himself occasionally have said oh I was only there five minutes he was there for a year and um, 
that's a long time. Even if, as I think was probably the case, he spent most of that year actually designing costumes and new new ideas for his own band, rather than for you know what he was actually supposed Which to be doing. Which band would that have been? That's the Comrades uh, moving into the. What's after that? Describe King the look of the Comrades for people who can't remember. There was that um, one who played at Alto Saxon, I can't remember now. Yeah. It was longish hair. Um, not that long hair at that the point, The R&B no. band? More, more like Tommy Steele. No, yeah. this is more like a Irish show band, something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's good. Tommy Steele, of course. I know so, exactly. So yeah. he, he's, he's doing songs like, let me think, um, Hits by Joe Brown and Brian Highland and... Maybe something as raunchy as Gary U.S. Bonds. Nothing, you know, <laughs> nothing harder than that. Definitely Doesn't not R&B. Is there a YouTube of him? Do you remember that Paul he appears on a television program, sort of campaigning for long hair or something? Yes, right? campaign against cruelty to against long-haired men. Yes, yes. <laughs> on these, on these utterly spurious <laughs> news items <laughs> that Pathé News would yes. concoct. Yes, with some Chumley Warner was a tame, with a tame. Found some young lads here with hair in their ears. That's right. Yes. It's rather sweet. You would have been about how old in that? Fourteen or fifteen or something. I don't know. Yeah, maybe a bit seventeen, more, maybe. Bit more, yeah. yeah. I, I think one of the people in that clip is Jimmy Page as well, who's there. Oh, the is he ride. really? Yeah. He'd obviously, obviously, obviously met, as you say, Denmark Street. Really, yeah. but he would have thought of this as, as a brilliant promotional opportunity. Yeah, except he, except he wasn't promoting anything. Oh right, he was just uh, promoting. It, long it, hair. it was unfortunately the gap between t- a oh. long gap between two singles. Yeah, and thought it through. Really. And so, yeah, <laughs> he, he wasn't going to make that mistake with Ziggy Stardust. The album came out when the image came out. You know? Yeah, yeah. But in a way, that reminds me of, of the way that uh, he belonged. His head was still in the fifties, but we didn't really find himself until he swept his hair back. Uh, I think um, it's interesting if you watch going ahead to the eighties. If you watch Bowie in uh, the, the film Absolute Beginners, because mm. in, in that I think he plays the future as he expected it to be in the fifties. Uh, Ziggy Stardust is, is Bowie kind of putting away the 60s, saying, 60s never happened. Let's pretend it's, it's, yeah. it's the day after 1959. And um, Ziggy Stardust is this quasi-1950s uh, sci-fi trash rock and roll figure. Um, and that, and that, was one, that was one of the things that helped Bowie to get ahead of everybody. You know, everybody else was still kind of stuck in the Beatles era in the 60s. Bowie's the first one who really came along and kind of abolished all of that, you know. Look, sixties never happened. You know, this is the this is the beginning of uh, everything. He was terrible at the sixties. You're right. I'd, I'd forgotten he was a, a hippie very briefly, very unsuccessfully, wasn't he? Very, very unsuited to long hair. Uh, well, he just he, because he wasn't he wasn't a he wasn't a follower. You know, he wasn't really, he didn't really fit when he tried to follow anybody else. It wasn't until he could sort of lead everybody that he finally found himself, I suppose. And he formed a. Uh, t- Oh, can't what they call it. Turquoise? No, it's a, a trio with, with Hermione Tur- Farthingale. Also, no, also known as Feathers, yes. Fe- became Feathers. Yeah. When they were a duo, when I think... Yeah, when but, he started going out with Angie Bowie, I think, and, uh, and uh, Hermione didn't see the funny side, left the group. <laughs> Musical and personal differences. Was she, she wasn't called Hermione, was she? Was she? Yes, she was. It, yes. it wasn't a real... Hermione well, Farthingale. Well, it wasn't a real name. It wasn't it? a real name, unfortunately. See, that's so disappointing. It is, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. I always thought that's why, you know, that time people were going out with these, um, you know... Uh, Wonderfully titled members of the aristocracy. When I assumed she was, what was her real name? Oh, I don't know. I can't remember. Hermione Rollbotham. I've no idea. No, probably was. Probably was. No tapes of that stuff exist. Um, there are, and yeah. they're, they're very, oh, are they? very twee, very fey. Yeah, there's film. There's film yeah. footage oh, really? of it. Yeah. yeah. Do, do, what does that? What does it look like? The, you, you can see it on YouTube. Uh, there are very. Um, I don't know what would be. A kind of a kind of lighter pentangle or something mm, would be a yeah. beginning a reference point, but again, it's it's just it looks ridiculous in hindsight because it's it's patently Bowie not um, following his own agenda, but being a being a sort of second or third hand copy of other things which are going on. And um, no, it's not until the year the strange is a funky dory that you began to you began to he began to be entirely his own man. Although 
the, the greatness begins, I think. I can quite see why you would concentrate on the 70s, Peter, mm-hmm. because the truly great work of Bowie begins in the 70s and ends, I, th- I think, more or less ends in the 70s as well. Yeah. So where do you think it begins? The man who sold the world. Uh, I, I love everything that Bowie's done before the 70s. And, I mean, I love all those Anthony Newley things, and I, yeah. I love a lot of his recent stuff as well. But the great stuff is the 70s. Man Who Sold the World is the real is the first real. But why, why does that jaw-dropping focus so, so clearly for you? Um, I think because I think because the, the, the partly because it's partly because it's the most sophisticated heavy metal record I've ever heard. It's it's to a large extent it's a Tony Visconti uh, Mick Ronson record. Mm. Uh, the you know the musical side of it is is fantastic. It's as it's as powerful as it's it's about as powerful as the first Led Zeppelin album or something, which it's yeah. roughly contemporaneous but the um the persona that bowie's invented for this record this um not madman but mentally distracted man um with 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 one foot in music hall and one foot in the mental hospital to be crude about it yeah is uh, is such an extraordinary character um, that combined with the, with the sheer power of, uh, of this um, of this music created largely, by, as I say, by Ronson and Visconti. Uh, yeah. That was the first. I didn't hear it at the time. Nobody did, unfortunately, because it was um, it was in this kind of wilderness period in between uh, being a one-hit wonder with Space Oddity and uh, yeah. and then beginning to reemerge with uh, Hunky Dory. So, like most people, I found this out retrospectively. But that's true that, that it found an audience quite quickly because. There was a whole generation of people who didn't want the Beatles and they didn't want Cream and they didn't want uh, the Incredible String Band and they just wanted something new that they could call their own. That would well, be true, you, it? you say quite quickly, but in Bowie's life, there's a huge gap between Space Oddity in the late summer of 69... Yeah, and um, success. And, ...and then success with Ziggy. Which, you know, the, there is no success then until Starman. Um, I think I discovered that Hunky Dory topped the Virgin... Mega store chart or something in nineteen start of seventy two, but that probably meant nothing. That was one shop. It didn't chart. It wasn't a hit. Um, he had nothing in America either. I mean, the man who sold the world, just as you say, Paul came and went. Yeah, uh, we got some great reviews in America, particularly. Right. They picked up on it, but I mean, there was no there was no follow through. Um, also, I'm I'm really struck by the audacity of the man. If if we look at him through the sixties, desperately scurrying to catch up, then. You would imagine if he was that desperate to cling to stardom in '69, he would have done a whole album of space, yeah, a space played, oddity. Played safe, exactly. He, 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 he could have done a cover of him in the year twenty-five, twenty-five. You know, he could have been Mister Spaceman. Um, instead of which, the next record he does, there's the Space Oddity, alias David Bowie album, which is very dark, mostly songs about yeah. sort of doom and gloom, the end of civilization, which is not what people who bought the single wanted. And then the man who sold the world, which Paul has described very eloquently. I mean, this incredible heavy metal record that. Anybody who heard any of his previous incarnations would not recognise. Yeah. And that doesn't work. And then suddenly, what's the next thing you hear? Changes. I mean, it's, I mean talk about changes. Just in, just in terms of the sonic changes of your, of your music. Yeah. No attempt made to, to, to gather up the previous audience and, and bring them along with you. Now, you can get away with that later in the decade when he's a superstar. But when you're not famous and you're still doing that, I think that takes enormous daring or, stup- or stupidity. No, that's a good point. It, it, it's such an exciting time, though. I, there's a great photograph of Bowie arriving. We published it in Word recently of Bowie arriving at the Hammersmith Odeon for the last of the Ziggy Stardust concerts. And uh, he's getting out of... Do you know the picture I mean? He's getting out of a, a limousine. And around him are all the faces of his fans who've been waiting just on mm. the off chance that he might drive up that side alley <laughs> and go through the stage door, which oh, eventually yeah. he does do. And um, 
it's absolutely terrific. He is—he must weigh about eight stone. You know, he's just this skinny yeah, yeah. little guy. He's wearing—he's wearing. One would say now, ill-advisedly, a, a, a denim bib and brace, uh, you know, the dungarees, you know, and a tremendous pair of stack heels. You know, and everyone's got their little instamatics. Mm. Trying to take pictures. But the best thing about it is the look of the people, the, the look of his fans, their, their faces—they are in absolute. Or an astonishment, as if he as if he isn't real. Mm. Now you, I think there's a certain familiarity with people. You know, you get to see the, any amount of YouTube and they're always yeah. in the papers, and you feel that they, you can feel your life and your head full of uh, of their constant presence if you want to. But then to see just a fleeting image of him and he's alive, this little tiny guy, mm. you know, and it's absolutely thrilling. And as you say, he was just so far ahead of his time. And. The, 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 there are two or three themes you could pick up on there. I mean, you said how, how skinny he was. I mean, he's down to, by 74, when he's on with the, the uh, Dick Cavett show doing Young Americans, he's about six stone. Um, and yes, that's bad, isn't it? He's wearing a baggy suit, but the suit is even more baggy. Yeah, that's right. It makes it, it, makes it, it look worse. Ridiculous. And I've, I've quoted two or three people in the book who talk about the difficulty they had getting any food down, and he would not eat. He was too busy. And I'm sure maybe other substances helped. To I think he had some appetite suppressants. Yes, possibly. But um, <laughs> he, he would not eat. They would make his staff would make him a meal, and he'd say, "Oh yeah, great." Or I want the I want the most expensive steak on room service, and then he wouldn't touch it because he'd have to write four more film scripts and do three paintings. And write ten songs before bedtime, but I can't go to bed because I've got to write another film script. What about the steak? Oh no, order me another one, and he wouldn't <laughs> eat that either. Have you ever met him? I haven't. No, I should stay at this point. Paul has done one of the all-time best interviews with Bowie. He two, has. Well, people, but don't feel bad. People very rarely do meet him. He hasn't given no. that many interviews. Certainly, Paul, you've interviewed him. I think. Yeah. You've interviewed him about, I think, three times. We three or four times. I've met him four or five times, I think. Uh, I've been lucky that each time it's been, each time I've interviewed him, it's been pretty lengthy. And mm. um, more fortunately, perhaps, uh, they were generally um, retro interviews. You know, often yeah. people give an interview because they want to talk about uh, the new album. Um, in my cases, he was up for talking about um, Back Catalogue. He was doing the Sound Vision Tour once, another time he was. Um, I don't know. He was. He agreed to talk about the seventies and so forth. Yeah. Which was fortunate for me because uh, it gives you, you know, something much more substantial to ask him about. Um, he's, he's, he's a treat to uh, interview. You know, extraordinarily intelligent man, very eloquent. Um, but at the same time, as you mentioned before, he's perpetual on, on his guard against uh, over intellectualising. I know. He's he's like a lot of like a lot of rock stars. Perhaps he's he's extremely intelligent, but he didn't have that much of a formal education yeah uh he's he's uh, he's an autodidact he's um he's read um thousands and thousands of books but he's not accustomed to that thing which those of us who went through the university process are accustomed to so is that a false modesty with, about his intelligence or is that his lack of it's confidence defensive, it's defensiveness it's, yeah. it's, it's def- partly it's a way to fend off the, the nonsense the the, the the idiotic theorizing which people like him have to put up with all the while and partly I think it is defensiveness he doesn't want to be caught off guard by some smart ass who's been to um, college uh, apparently getting the better of him by being cleverer with words than he is um, I find that kind of thing heartbreaking because you know Bull and I have sat through many uh, rock awards shows where mm. very bright people get up on stage and you're expecting them to make a tremendously eloquent and considered speech and just go oh thanks well, for Derek who helped us out with I know, this it's so disappointing so great and yeah. Debbie yeah alright let's all go and get pissed do you think but you're really Really clever. Why is this? People are really I mean, scared. He's a, he's a yeah. genuinely clever guy. Mm. I, yeah. I agree with that. I mean, I said, yeah. I've only interviewed him once, and very, very briefly, only for ten minutes actually. And he, he was um, 
had a very down period of his uh, career. He was um, actually promoting uh, some, uh, some art. Do you remember in about 1994 when we were at Mojo and I was doing a big piece about Anton Corbine? Oh, yeah. And yeah. he had agreed to talk about Anton, but he was standing in front of one of his pictures at the Flowers East Gallery and feeling very unconfident indeed, you know. But, but you know, he was just so bright and so kind of lucid and uh, and yet at the moment he started to come up with something that threatened to be an interesting intellectual construction, he would then just deflate the balloon and sort of just laugh it all off. Yeah, that's when he will go into mm. his Brixton Dave or Brom- Brixton Bromley Dave, Dave, uh, Bromley Dave. Pers- persona just so that he doesn't appear to be uh, getting too pompous. Uh, it's a, re- a reflexive mechanism. That, uh, but did you find him also un? Unbelievably kind of charming and upbeat. I don't know if maybe that's he's always like that or something, but I, I just couldn't believe I thought maybe he'd had exegesis or something. He was so happy and smiley and enthusiastic. And was that just a phase that I met him in, or, or did you, you find I don't know. Something, I mean, something which bedevils Bowie all the while is, is no matter how he uh, appears, no matter what mode he's in, everybody assumes it's an act. If he's friendly, it's because he's mm. decided that morning he's going to be friendly, That's a good Dave. Point. Uh, if he's deep, it's he's because he decided to be yeah, deep. Yeah, because he's completely uh, made up changes as we as we use right. every other headline for every Bowie piece. Yeah, that's um, right. So he, he, he is kind of um, he is kind of beset by this perception that he is. Um, uh, and, and that does remind you of somebody who has gone through that, that kind of exegesis. But I don't think he has, not to my, not to my knowledge. I mean, this may be uh, just the way he is these days. But he does seem... Um, he's kind of... He's not a natural, really, even when he's being very friendly and informal. I think there's um, something slightly tense about him. And um, what, what, what struck me was that in the same way as in 1965, 66, Bob Dylan um, adopted the pose of, huh? What? Who said that? To the press, yes, the Bowies is the opposite. That the charm you've both talked about, both described, um, and the winning way in which he's prepared to agree with what interviewers say. I mean, I, I mentioned in the book that certainly during much of the seventies, every time a Charles Murray or somebody would say, "I've got a feeling," isn't isn't John I'm only dancing actually about Kierkegaard? Then Bowie would go, "Yeah, that's it. You've got it exactly." And it, and it, <laughs> it, 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 it wouldn't it matter. Is? Yeah. And it wouldn't matter what. Charlie Murray or whoever, you guys maybe at that point, had said he would agree, and it's a way of deflecting. And also, the, the interviewer goes away thinking, oh... Well, immensely flattered. I've yeah. explained David Bowie to David Bowie. Yeah, <laughs> Brilliant, the monkey guy would exist without me. And meanwhile, the real David Bowie scurries off untouched. He's chuckling. Yes. <laughs> Adopting a new persona. What did he tell you that you didn't... Uh, do you remember anything he told you that was a revelation to you? You know, that, that you, you, you didn't know. I mean, I remember something about the Ziggy Stardust, Stardust character that you invented. Remember Ziggy Stardust, yeah. The, the Ziggy Stardust character has got about um, eight different origins now. I'm losing, yeah. ca- I'm losing count of the origins of the Ziggy Stardust character. Obviously you told him what the origins were. Yes. Kierkegaard. <laughs> With the hurt of, ex- ex- of Charles Sean Murray. <laughs> You've just ruined my exclusive now. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> um, so amongst the many origins of Ziggy Stardust, uh, I remember he was saying, uh, used to get the train in from from um, Bromley uh, on the uh, the South London line into Victoria, Waterloo, whatever, and you would pass the uh, the, the shops around um, South London, and there was a big tailor's shop called um, Ziggy Somethings. Uh, presumably a very old uh, Jewish tailor by the sound yeah. of it, you know. Yeah. So uh, the name um, that the name Ziggy stuck in his mind from the not not Iggy. Although he'll tell another interviewer, yeah, it's based on it's it, Iggy. Yeah. I took it from Iggy, of course, just as the character is based on Iggy. Yeah. Or else to say the character no, the character is based on Mark Bolan. 
Stardust is he always he's pretty consistent about Stardust being taken from the legendary Stardust cowboy. That's or, right. Or the that. Ledge, as he calls him, who was uh, <laughs> who was one of the one of the outsider artists on uh, Phillips at the same time as Bowie, whom um, he got to know very well. Uh, kind of slightly uh, bizarre character who wrote um, uh, Gemini spacecraft. Yeah. Like his? Yeah. Whom Bowie was uh, the young Bowie was uh, terrifically impressed by. You mentioned Bowler, and I forgot all about that, because it was an incredible rivalry, wasn't there? I mean, the, 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 one gets ahead before the other, and, and Bowie's then, I think, I think Bowler's successful first, isn't he? he is. Yeah, and then yeah. Bowie, oh, yeah, Bowie's yeah, yeah. immensely eaten up about it, and then there's that wonderful bit in Black Country Rock, which I'm, I'm sure he must have done as just a spontaneous thing, and it wasn't planned, but the final verse doesn't he impersonate mm. uh, Bowler. And then there's that terrible thing at the end where I think Bowler's trying to come back, and he's got this, he got a television show, and he, he's put on a massive amount of the old suet. Do you remember? And he's perspiring heavily. And I think, mm. doesn't Bowie come back and help him on that show? On, on the very last show, that's yeah. right. His last show. The, they jam, and extremely symbolically, Bowler falls off the stage in his excitement. And that's it, that's the end of the... End of and the that st- is pretty much the last we see of that's the la- That is the last moment of his that career. Is he falls off the stage, yeah. And that was, was that during the time, I mean, it, in 77? I mean, he was yeah, dying yeah. in September 77? It was about a week before he died, yeah, I yeah. think. Yeah. But earlier than that, they had got together in a New York hotel room fuelled on uh, naughty substances, and had come up with an idea, I think while they were watching A Clockwork Orange 14 times in a row or whatever, <laughs> they come up with the idea of they were going to make a movie... As you do. And... Um, <laughs> I, I can't remember which is in the book. I can't remember which way around it was. Whether, state would you be in? Whether, <laughs> either Mark Bowden was going to direct the film or he was going to write it and Bowie was going to do the other thing and they were going to make an album together. Now, of course, for Bowie, this was just one more cocaine fueled flight of fancy and he'd forgotten about it within 30 seconds. Poor old Mark Bowden shopped this idea around the British pop press for the next three years, promising. And of course, being Mark Bowden, he had to make it sound bigger and bigger every time so that by 77, it's sounding as if it's going to be the most extensive, um, extravagant album of all time. And earlier that year, the two of them did get together. It's disappointment of its appearance. (laughs) The the pair of them did get together in a studio in 77. And actually... The, the, the little fragments that are around on YouTube, I think, again, um, you can hear just the hint of maybe they could have made something like The Idiot, the, Bo- the Bolan version of The Idiot. But he's showing off so much that you can hear, also hear Bowie getting increasingly pissed off with him and going, you know, OK, you know, let's move on to the next one. So it was, it was destined never to happen. Have you heard a lot of outtakes in, um, in, the, in the course of researching this book? I've heard everything I possibly can, yeah. And how did you get to hear that stuff? Um, the same way as everybody else does. Bootlegs. I- illegally? And, illegally, of course, yeah. Yep. And what have you heard uh, uh, that hasn't been released that you thought was uh, particularly illuminating? Mm. Um, illuminating rather than particularly brilliant. There's a song called... Well, as often as the conversations in the background and stuff, isn't <laughs> it? <you know? laughs> um, there's a song called How Lucky You Are, alias Miss Peculiar, I think. I'd better check this out because... If I, get, if I get it wrong, you're going to get 5,000 5, emails about Much it. Much as I enjoyed your guest on yes. Tuesday. <laughs> he knows, <laughs> yeah. he knows absolutely nothing. <laughs> yes, yeah. I could have written that book. Please. Yeah. How Lucky You Are, alias Miss Peculiar, which is his first piano song. Um, and his songwriting changed immeasurably when he, he discovered the piano. And that's the difference between um, Man of the World and Hunky Dory. Yes. Two-thirds yes. of Hunky Dory is written on the piano. Fascinating, yeah. I didn't and, know that. Um, I describe in the book the way that 
like anybody who can't play the piano who wants to, who works out, oh, three fingers, you can do a chord, one finger, bass, yeah. and then you just it's run, da- cob, run down. It's piano yeah. style, yeah. But that was good enough to, to so give... So that changed the way you composed Completely, it. and that, that, just that idea of taking three fingers in the right hand, one in the left hand, playing around on the keyboard, maybe just moving down what sounds nice, that gave him changes, Life on Mars, Oh You Pretty Things, you know, which is not yeah. bad for a first experiment Brilliant. with the piano. I never realised. That's why they've got this very pronounced bass pass, don't mm. they? They're all... Yeah. Hooked around a bit. That's yeah. fascinating. But 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 the very first of those is this awful song, which sounds like a Eurovision Song Contest reject, Miss Peculiar, which I think he sent to Tom Jones, who must just have thought this was a joke, you know. Hopeless. Obviously, five years later, Tom would have been champing at the bit to record it. But yeah, we'd send songs to Frank Sinatra or anybody mm-hmm. who could possibly yeah. uh, try and place them. But again, that's how he saw himself. You know, he'd either write musicals. I think he started as began yeah. as a again Tim Pan Alley as, as an idea for a West End musical. Yeah. You know, before it morphed into something else. But um, part of the reason he was so adventurous at that stage was I think he he also had nothing to lose. He, he thought pretty much everything I do turns to dust anyway yeah. so um, you know what have I got to lose I'll yeah. try a different um, attack next time around yeah. well, uh, well, but once, even once he was successful as you say even once he was successful he was still not tempted to repeat the formula mm. and that was what in a way that was how he captured people's imagination oh, in the 70s the way the Beatles yeah. had in the 60s because mm. no previous success um, would um, trammel them into um, mm. feeling const- you know, feeling obliged to repeat it yeah. um, they just they didn't care you know it was scorched earth every time you know we started mm. fresh with the, with the next record what did you learn from the, from the process then? So you spent, I mean, I'm trying to imagine, how long do you take lock, locked up in an attic somewhere thinking about <laughs> David Bowie all day, every day? How, how long did it take to write for a start? Oh, beyond their madness lies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the research was about a year, of which two or three months was literally just listening to David Bowie and going, what's that? You know, is that a, is that a Celeste? Is that a harmonium? Not that it's necessary in the book, but it all just gave me a sense of what was going on. Um, and then the actual writing process was the shortest bit. That was that was three months of very intensive sort of nine to five or nine to nine, just soaking myself in the stuff. Um, but trying to think myself not only into what was happening in the studio, how he had written the song, what um, what musical and lyrical influences were in play, but also psychologically what each song meant to him. Um, and Obviously, if you're talking about songs about madness, for example, you have to get into the stuff about yeah. his family. But also what, what each song or what each peer represented to him in terms of how he saw himself in the world, his career. And uh, so it, it was almost like a process of, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but trying to become David Bowie just during that period um, to read the stuff that he was reading, to think, OK, what records was he listening to? That's interesting. Oh, there's a, there's a thing from a, a weird late 60s singer-songwriter thing that I remember. Oh, there's something else from the same record. He obviously played that. Um, discovering in the late 70s that he obviously spent most of his days listening, listening to John Lennon Plastic Owner Band. Oh, really? Because it's such a, when you have that in your head, you can yeah. suddenly hear the influence on Heroes, on the remake of Space Oddity oh, that he does at the end of the 70s, and on um, Scary Monsters as well. So trying to pick up those themes, not in a sort of train spottery, ha-ha, I've caught yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. but to work out where he was and to understand what he thought he was trying to do. And there's the one song, in researching it and looking at the background of the song, because the book brilliantly puts into context all these particular tracks, where the ideas came from, a lot of the musical background and their um, evolution, their gestation, etc. There's the one song that seems different to you, because you now know so much more about it. I think as a pair, Quicksand and Station to Station, which maybe are not obvious ones to go together, but I think they both represent him um, 
testing out the limits of his personality, of his knowledge, testing out the limits of what, how he can exist in the world, um, philosophy, the occult, what kind of things can I believe in? And in Quicksand, he uses that um, as, a, as a way to sort of kickstart his creativity. And then the song is almost like a list of all the possibilities that he could have followed. Now, Station to Station, it's a much more confused man who's doing that. But basically, he, he still manages to cram... Uh, all sorts of influences again the occult religion literature the shakespeare and all sorts of things and craft work and whatever else um so those those two songs as two extremely different areas of his career where he crammed in as much of what's going on in my head as possible and paul we're going around the table now we're gonna have a favorite a favorite bowie song from this period fraser you're next so prepare um, from oh, sorry, from, from <laughs> China go. We can't have that. I love almost every song from the seventies, without uh, that exception. Uh, but my favourite would be, although it's disappointingly obvious, um, is uh, Heroes. Title, oh, right. title track of Heroes. It's just the most. Um, it's just the most uh, enormous, um, uplifting song. Uh, it, it, it alters my mood uh, within um, within a, um, within seconds of hearing it every time, and it never wears out. It's amazing. It never wears out for me. Fraser Lurie. Uh, five years. Five is very good. Yeah, I like it. The epic nature of it. Yes, Fraser's just passed me a piece of paper with a few questions from the massive. Peter, I'm going to address <laughs> these well, to both of you actually. Does Peter not get to choose his favourite song? You, you, you sort of did. I but, sort of did. Uh, but, he yes. did before, but it was really the favourite song as of after writing the book. Was there a favourite song before the book? As, 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 well, maybe even after the song. In, in terms of what I actually um, would like to hear, I suppose Young Americans, I think, as a performance. But what links all these songs we've mentioned and what people never say enough is what a fantastic singer he is. Yeah. And, what a fantastic, Absolutely. and what fantastic backing vocals he does. That's something that is always overlooked as well. He's up there with the Beatles when it comes to that. Absolutely. And so, well, look, Nick Horton, 60. Uh, writes <laughs> with this query thank you for this Nick Horton 16 it is was Bowie's work improved by drugs that's quite a good question actually how different would it have been without it does he mean it, the panel does he mean it as a listener or as a performer oh, <laughs> Nick Horton himself <laughs> lit up like a Christmas tree <laughs> <laughs> like a pinball machine while listening to everybody. I don't know Paul what do you think I mean uh, it's, uh, it's pretty the panel yeah of course one, one always shies away from the conclusion that uh, taking drugs was good for the music in Bowie's case it's, it's a little bit disturbing because if you were to sort of map a graph of drug intake against perceived musical quality anyway they are um, <laughs> they are horribly similar looking uh, for me personally anyway um, although I like all of Bowie's music it absolutely peaks around uh, station to station uh, time low when I think he was beginning to clean up uh, to some extent but um, this also uh, and, and Young Americans and this was I, as far as I can gather this was the absolute peak of his uh, drug intake as well I'm not saying the drugs caused the, um, the musical uh, the incandescent genius to manifest itself but they did overlap to a, to a huge degree don't try this at home, I'd just like to add to that briefly that um, I think what the drugs did was enable Bowie to do very quickly what he was trying to do throughout the decade, which was access his creativity in the most sort of seamless, um, 
painless way possible. And if taking, if taking industrial quantities of cocaine would enable him to do that, then he would do it. Yeah, there might be, like the old phrase, uh, in vino veritas, sometimes people drink a bit. Yeah. So it makes them say something which yep, is yep. not necessarily rubbish. It may be true. It's something that they it's wouldn't awesome. actually say. Mm. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's true. <laughs> Upbeat Nick says, is it time for a tin machine reappraisal? Who is, to this decade, what Bowie was to the 70s? Oh, sorry, it's a different question, uh, which I've phrased wrongly. Who is, to this decade, what Bowie was to the 70s? Tim Machine, I don't know. Tim I mean, Machine. We kind of draw the veil of that, don't we? I mean, um, go back and listen to the records. The singing is fantastic. Oh, right, OK. The second album, particularly. Some of the, I mean, I'm not a great fan of Tim Machine uh, to listen to, but Bowie's singing is amazing. All oh, right, OK. And what about... Several people here, actually, have written about uh, Bowie's first... Um, first album, which was called, I think, David Bowie, was on the Derham label in 1967. It gets a lot of flack, but I'm very fond of it personally. This is Andrew, the Andrew F. Yeah, me too. It's a, it's a good record, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I think, Paul, you said the same thing, haven't you? You like the early stuff as well. It's, it, it doesn't make much sense in terms of what came afterwards, but in terms of what he had been doing up to that point, all the stuff we've been talking about, the entertainment with Tim Panelli, it makes perfect sense. I've got one last one here from, from the great Dogface Boy. Hello, Hello Dogface Boy. We're big fans of his. Uh, yes, Heathen is great, but One Outside is the gem of his last few years of active service. Discuss and show your working. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fascinating... I, mean, uh, I say in the book, if it had come out after Heroes, it would have been greeted as you know, such a huge step in, in that progression, yeah. instead of which I think he, he fell off with Lodger. Um, unfortunately, when it came out, there wasn't the audience there for it. There was an audience for Bowie as a as a icon as an icon yeah. as a memory of what of what he had been in the 70s and 80s you know, as a superstar there wasn't a, really a, a mass audience for him as an experimental artist anymore where do you, I mean we haven't heard from him for uh, since about in fact virtually since you interviewed him actually Paul for, for the word <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you, you told him something about retired, Kierkegaard uh, he went uh, weeping uh, off into a corner somewhere <laughs> <laughs> and he felt he'd achieved all he needed to achieve but but what I mean the, the rumours obviously the ridiculous rumours some mm. of them are, are rather grim and have a medical dimension to them that he had a heart attack no he did have a we, he he's did, not yeah. physically well enough to get back on stage. But well, what, Paul? I'm going to you first. Where do what, what, what do you think is actually happening, or is he just retired looking after children? Uh, well, the, 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 the last the, the last I heard from his people, his people uh, a couple of months ago was that he was uh, living quietly in New York and doing the school run with his for his daughter um, Alexandra, and um, and pottering away on uh, his book. Which is which? He's writing a memoir, isn't he? I can't some a kind of memoir. I don't think it's straight autobiography. (laughs) You think so? I've got got a feeling it's going to be old lyrics from his cupboard, and he's going to write write a few captions rather than three hundred thousand words on how I really created Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, I I think the dread phrase "non-linear" may come into play in this uh, context. Uh, But he has been uh, (laughs) he has been in in, he has had some uh, bad health and. um, there was, a, there was a, there's a, this YouTube thing, a video of him uh, doing a fashion show in New York a few years ago. He performs uh, Life on Mars. Um, and I, I always I tell this to everybody, you know, look it up on YouTube. David Bowie, Fashion Rocks was the concert, Life on Mars. And um, he comes on. It's, it's, it's terribly poignant. If you're an old Bowie fan, uh, as I was saying before, it's really the first time I can recall ever seeing him. And he actually looks his age. Um, mm. You know, he's a, he aged extraordinarily well he 
he, he never grew fat or bald. That's or, right, absolutely. Um, and in this, he still looks great, but he looks old. Looks old. He looks battered, actually. He looks, yeah. He's got a black eye and his, his arm's in plaster, but, but knowing, black uh, guy doesn't knowing the old show business queen... <laughs> he's got a good look. <laughs> he probably, it's probably all faked anyway. <laughs> yes, it probably was. But it's a terrific... probably got up that morning. A, it's an awfully uh, affecting uh, performance, and he has... Um, uh, Mike Garson on piano is only accompaniment, and uh, they pitch it down an octave mm. below um, the original pitch of the um, the first recording. It's tremendously moving to watch. Well, we should really end with a sort of Radio Two style slick plug for the book, um, which I, I, I could provide actually. Uh, the man who sold the world. When is it out? Actually, um, next week. Next week. End of September. Well, man who sold the world. Da- David Bowie and uh, the nineteen seventy four Peter Dog is out very soon. And how fantastic of you both come in. Been an absolute joy. Thank you. Thank you. If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your newsagent every month. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 